How many of you know the words to that song? I'd like you to just picture that for a moment. Fill my cup, Lord. I lift it up, Lord. Come and quench the thirsting of my soul. Bread of heaven, feed me till I want no more. That's our prayer today, isn't it? There is a nourishing that happens by the power of God in our worship. So as I pray, I invite you to just take a deep breath to lift up your cup to God, to be nourished by God today. And perhaps even now, you imagine in your mind the burdens that you're laying down before Jesus, that you let go of and release those. Jesus, you are the water of life. You are the bread of heaven. And we want to feast today to be nourished deeply in your presence. Would you please come to us? We, your servants, are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know if Nathan qualifies as the itty-bitty baby, but that song was perfect for a baby dedication day. He's got all the babies in his hands. Um, we love you guys very much, and I thought, what a perfect song for today. We are in a series called Overcomer, and we have been journeying through a letter, First Peter. It's Peter's words, and he's writing to a people that are facing really challenging times. They are scattered throughout five regions in Asia Minor. They are strangers in that land. They are suffering. Can you imagine what they're going through? And picture this context as we receive the word of God today. It's important to understand who he's writing to and, and what they're facing. We're halfway through the series now. This is part four of eight. So I invite you to turn there. It's 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 11. If you turn all the way to Revelation, go back a little bit to the left and you'll find this letter there. I invite you to turn there. 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 11. Peter, the disciple of Jesus, writes to these believers, Dear friends, I urge you, can you hear him pleading, as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to the governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of the foolish. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom to cover up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love your fellow believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Verse 18. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if you bear up under the pain of unjust suffering 
because you are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, it is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Then he quotes Isaiah here, and throughout the rest of the passage, he's interweaving quotes from Isaiah. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sin in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep gone astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. This verse 11 and 12, the very first two verses that we begin with are the central point of this letter. It's the climax. It's everything's been working to this point and everything after it is explaining this point, this very point, where he is saying you are foreigners and exiles, sojourners and pilgrims. This is to be their identity. Their core identity is that I am a foreigner here in this place. Now this literally applied to them. They were scattered in a region that they did not call home. But he gives it, he infuses it with spiritual significance for them who were here in that time. As Scott McKnight calls it in the verse 11, he says, live holy lives in the midst of secular chaos and let God take care of the final results. In other words, I hope that people see how you live so that on the day Jesus visits us, they will be drawn in that day to God. You see, the church swings on a pendulum between extremes. We can sometimes try to insulate ourselves against the world to where we create parallel systems so that you never have to meet someone who doesn't think like you or believe like you. We insulate ourselves from the world and all those who are not like us. And then the pendulum can swing the other way where we try to imitate the world, that we act and behave just like the chaos around us. But actually the call of Jesus is the call to infiltrate the world, to make an impact for the sake of the kingdom of God by becoming, what are the images Jesus uses? Salt and light. Well, salt is no good if it's just sitting on the side of your dish when you're eating your food, but it has to become mingled and give flavor to the rest. And so the image in scripture, and this is true of verse 11 here, that God's love would be enfleshed in our life to make an impact on the culture around us, that God wants to make a difference through our lives. So first, Peter says, I urge you that you would live such good lives that they would be drawn to glorifying God. We are meant to live in relationship with people who don't believe the way that we do. Now you don't have to raise your hand, but just try to think of who are you in relationship with who doesn't believe in God the way you do? If it takes you a while to think of someone, perhaps this is the Holy Spirit prompting you to build bridges of relationship with people that are not like you. 
Because here is the call to live such good lives. Well, they need to know and understand your lives, our lives. So who do you know who doesn't think or believe the way that you do? It's like camping. Anyone love camping? Anyone, anyone proud? You love camping? Yes. Okay, now this is the other question just for curiosity. Who detests camping? Would never be <laughs> fantastic. I learned just as much by that question. But I love camping, so you're going to have to bear with me on this <laughs> for a moment. <laughs> but I grew up in a, in a backpacking situation, so my dad, he always looked down on camping. I grew up, and then I realized I like camping and backpacking, and they're both different, and I love them both. You can drive out, especially the kids, have it all in the car. Oh, this is amazing. It's brilliant. Both are so good. But camping and backpacking, and then my dad met someone on the trail because we did a whole section. We were going through uh, actually the Appalachian Trail, like a lot of people were through hiking, and he met someone who was an ultralight backpacker, and so then suddenly his obsession was how little can I take and how light can it be? So it's like, oh wow, this creature comfort at the campsite can be only 0.4 ounces. This is exciting, and I'm like, oh yeah, that's awesome, Dad. But no matter if you're an ultralight camper, a backpacker, or if you are a car camper who goes all out with luxury and you have your medium-sized refrigerator, your television, and you're sitting there in your easy chair camping edition, whatever your camping looks like, you are still camping. It's not your home. So he calls us foreigners and exiles saying, this is not your home. No matter what version you do, this is not your home. This place that you're living, don't get too comfortable, Peter says. It's the difference between a real home and a dorm room. You can set up a dorm room no matter how beautiful it is and how matchy-matchy everything is or however your style, but it's not the same as your home. It's not the same as being in that place that you call home with the safety of it. So Peter says, Jesus is coming and our true home is in Christ. We must keep our focus there. You don't get to take any of this with you no matter how luxurious your campsite. You don't take it with you. Keep your priorities and keep your treasure fixed on Jesus. You're a pilgrim, you're a sojourner, you're a resident alien. You were born again into the living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Remember his first uh, admonitions in chapter one? He says, you have this inheritance in Jesus Christ. You are citizens of heaven. And as Paul says later, you eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is our hope. This is our focus. I want to remind you today too, friends, you are foreigners and exiles and you eagerly await a savior who is coming back. Even though you're far from home, even though they were far from home, because of our fellowship in Jesus, the power and the healing, the grace and the strength of heaven begins now. We have this experience with Jesus that starts today. Perhaps some of you come from families, you yourself or your family have actually had the experience of 
either being a refugee in another place or immigrating to another place that was not like your home. Perhaps the closest you came to that is being a student in another state. Whatever the closest parallel comes for you, when you are away from home, you get homesick. Have you ever felt homesick before? Any of you ever felt homesick? What do you long for? Familiarity, the landmarks of home, the food of home, the home-cooked meal that you love, the things that you normally like to do, the place where your heart and your body feel at rest. Peter says, don't give in. I know that you're getting homesick. These folks were homesick for Jerusalem. These folks were homesick for the place where they wanted to be, but he was comparing this to a broader homesickness for our heavenly home in Jesus. So he tells them, conduct yourselves honorably, so honorably among the pagans that though you are accused of doing wrong, they see your good deeds and bring glory to God. Now, I want to add this context here. When you hear the words to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul, what do you normally think of? You probably think of the temptations of a sinful society, that chaos that I mentioned a little bit ago. But hear the context of these words. These are Christians who are experiencing the tension of persecution. So imagine that you are watching believers who are suffering and going through hard times. Imagine that you're watching them go through this and you know it's wrong. They're falsely accused. It says, though they accuse you of doing wrong. They were being accused. They were actively going through this suffering. And I believe that context helps us to understand these words so much more richly. Those those things that war against your soul I believe could be bitterness and anger. Because when you watch unjust things happening, what happens to you? There's something that eats away inside of you unless you're intentional about that. There's an eating inside that can happen. So they were watching other believers suffer and there was a war that was going on in their soul even as they were under this suffering, this persecution this challenge. They were watching an unjust behavior in an unjust system. And when you are facing that lack of justice, you have to be attentive to the anger and bitterness that can take over. So he's telling them to be constrained by Christ so that all of their behavior is for the glory of God. Live in such a way as when their accusations come, you are able to point to the glory of God. So much is summed up in those verses, live in such a way. God doesn't promise to take us out of it. Whatever it is that you're facing, God doesn't promise to take us out of it. The suffering, the accusations, the war against your soul, God doesn't promise to remove you from it. But God promises strength. So Peter says, live in such a way that when you're attacked, when you're persecuted, when what's happening to you is unjust, when you're going through a divorce and all of those nasty things are being said about you but you know they're not true, what will you do? What will it look like when even these things are assailing you? 
how can your life bring glory to God? Or even in those unexpected things, when your child is going through a a terrible illness or when you get cancer, what does it look like in your life when God doesn't remove you from it but gives you strength through it? How can your life bring glory to God in the midst of it? You never wanted that divorce. You never wanted persecution. You never wanted cancer. You never wanted those things. But how can the way that you live bring glory to God? Peter calls on them to develop resilience in Jesus, following after the pattern of Jesus. Resilience is that capacity to recover quickly from difficulties. It's toughness, it's an inner fortitude. I like how Dr. Susan David uh, expands on this a little bit. She says the term, uses the term emotionally agile to describe resilient people. She says these people don't ignore the hard, the uncomfortable parts of life, They don't just focus on the pleasant things. They actually move away from labels such as positive or negative, good or bad, but they realize that emotions are necessary parts of the human experience and instead focus on embracing it all. That's what I hear in Peter's letter. He's saying this emotional agility, this resilience means you are living in this place and you're going to allow all of that to bring glory to God. Verse 11 and 12 is this central point and he is drawing them into a resilience in Jesus that they could have in no other way. Then Peter goes on in the next section where he talks about three unfair systems. Let's look at those for a moment. It's autocratic government in verses 13 to 17, slavery in verses 18 to 20, those of which, those two I read, And then the next section, male dominance and marriage, is in the next chapter, which will be for next week. But as he's addressing these three systems and structures that the people were living within, he speaks directly into the experience, the context, where these believers are. Before we even get into any more of the details, I just want to start by saying Peter is not saying it's okay, any of these. He's not saying it's okay for authorities to treat people in abusive ways. He's not saying that slavery is God-ordained as a system for society to operate within. He's not saying that men should exert power over women. Abuse is not okay. But he's simply saying that these systems exist. Now the hard part, the difficult part, as I sit with people and as others do, is hearing when the Bible is used to give reason or justification for staying in situations of abuse. Physically, spiritually, emotionally, if people are using scripture as the reason why you must continue to suffer violence, call into question what they're doing with scripture. To say to say that something exists does not mean scripture is condoning it. To say that these systems exist does not mean that God is saying this is his ordained way of operating. There are some horrible and sad stories in scripture. There are some really disturbing stories of scripture. And some people that come to me and say, how can I believe this as the word of God when it has this in it, don't recognize that simply by recording what humans are capable of does not mean God is condoning it. So when we look around the world today and we see what people do to people, 
when we see what suffering depraved humanity can cause, what I hope we recognize is we are the same as they were. And what's recorded here is also experienced by us today, that God acknowledges that this is where humanity is. That does not mean that God condones it. So God, God spoke into this system and Peter acknowledges it in his letter. His words are subversive for both those who wish to rebel and use violence against that very system and also subversive for those who wish to just maintain the status quo. Here are these systems, Peter says, and now how can we be overcomers within it? What does it look like to live and witness within an unjust system? This is the controlling question that Peter asks in this letter. So before we go any further, I just want to declare that God does not approve of every action humans take in this word. God does not approve, but it is recorded there so that we can understand the far-reaching grace and love of God. Violence is never okay, and especially using scripture to back up the justification for that violence. So this question, how do we live and witness within an unjust system first is addressed with autocratic government. The Roman government cannot be compared to the American president or the Canadian prime minister. We don't understand what they were facing. You see, to step out from under the authority had swift and immediate danger for the life of the Christians that Peter was writing to. Peter's call for respecting leaders or living under their authority does not mean that we carry out their wishes doesn't mean that you just blindly go along with what's around you, but likely due to the rise of tension during Nero's era, his regime, Peter is sharing this advice for the safety of the members that he's writing to. What does it look like to live and witness here? You hold intention, respect for authority, and a call to live under the law of God. In the New Testament, these are called household codes, this showcasing of how to treat believers. And these really emphasized reciprocal submission as a way of life for Christians. So Peter tells us the motivation. Peter says it's all to bring glory to God and to have an impact on the society. That you would live such just lives among the pagans that they would be able to glorify your God. One commentator says perhaps this very passage is an indication of who the makeup was of the church. Remember, they gathered together and they heard Peter's letter and it was orally read that, that those that were gathered in the church were made up of more slaves than masters, more wives than husbands. That means that he's speaking specifically to those who are second-class citizens in their culture. That he's speaking to those who've been excluded from the hierarchy and power, the system that they were in. So his concern in this, this letter is that he's wanting them to be safe. They're under serious threat. And then he's also wanting to empower them to live out their biblical values, to live out in following after Jesus, these things that they believe in a way that can influence those around them for the sake of the kingdom of God. This context is important for us to understand how Peter speaks into their lives. The second structure is slavery that he speaks 
into. Again, I will say he is not condoning slavery. These very passages, any text that speaks of slavery has been used used and abused in the past here on American soil to perpetuate injustices against people made in the image of God. Just because these passages were used so harmfully does not believe God had any part in what they were doing. It is different, the slavery that they were speaking of, but, but that is immaterial. First, we must understand that God does not condone what is written it's important to understand the differences between first century slavery and what was practiced here in America even still. Some have estimated that about a third of the population in urban, Roman, and Greek world was slave population. Slavery was a really diverse institution in the ancient world. Slavery was not a permanent condition. Many people would willingly, voluntarily become slaves to a Roman citizen so that they could either earn enough money, uh, have enough savings to become a Roman citizen themselves, or find favor so that they could become Roman citizens and have freedom themselves. So some commentators actually argue that the reason Peter writes this is so that they would do all that they needed to to become full Roman citizens and be free themselves so that they could move up in the social ranking of their society and culture. Regardless of how different first century slavery was than slavery here in the United States, the fact that Peter speaks to slaves does not mean that God wants any part in slavery. He does not condone hurtful or, or abusive behavior of those made in the image of God. If you look at the principles of the kingdom of God, no form of slavery is defensible in scripture. So let's pause. If this was their culture and their structure that Peter was speaking into, what about us today? What does that look like? Systemic injustice in our society looks different than what they were facing there. I recognize that for some of us here, it's a given. For others, you're on a journey of understanding what this means, what this looks like. What could this passage be speaking into our lives? Systemic injustice and racism are defined as deeply ingrained racist thinking, practices, and actions embedded in the core foundation of American society that have persisted over centuries and continue today. So it's really hard for any of us to understand an experience that's not our own some have said, I don't understand that story. I, I don't understand that experience. I'm not sure what that's like. So we've been posting on social media some different books that we've been recommending on our church social media sites um, as a great place to start. Social justice and the word of God is a journey through scripture that's a really fantastic place to start. We've also quoted from this next book, Be the Bridge, Pursuing God's Heart for Racial Reconciliation, that can help you and I to walk along and understand another's journey. One other recommendation that we've put out on social media is the cross and the lynching tree. Because we're all on this journey of understanding what this passage means for our lives today and understanding another's journey. From a biblical perspective, systemic injustice is a system which requires or encourages us to break the moral laws of God designed for the flourishing of God's creation. 
So it was this understanding that led Frederick Douglass and Sojourner Truth and Harriet Tubman, among others, to subvert systems of American slavery during the time that it was active. The system of slavery went against the moral law of God that human beings, all of us, are made in the image of God. And so therefore, as people belonging to God, Christians were not held to keeping a law that went against the moral law of God because that is who we belong to. So as we look and understand what this is today, we recognize anything that goes against this moral law of God, this all human beings are created in the image of God as something to actively fight against. How does this connect with us here in 1 Peter? The Christians then were experiencing freedom in Jesus that expanded their minds unlike anything they had experienced before. So they likely started to think of this freedom as changing the way they lived in their society. And Peter saw the danger they were about to face. The tension between safety and social change and how they could live out their biblical values where they were. Enter then Gandhi here for a moment. He was an activist in India who helped to lead India's independence movement in the early 1900s. And he organized peaceful protests that inspired people all over the world. One of the most famous people that he inspired was Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. He often said that as he read, even though he never met Gandhi, he read his writings and he visited India himself, that Jesus taught him to love his enemies and Gandhi showed him how. Because there was this non-violence that Gandhi showed that was exactly what Peter is talking about here. He says, if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. You suffer, as you do, you showcase the evil being done to you. It is a way of seeking conversion of those who are perpetuating violence and evil. So Dr. King took hold of Gandhi's message. He called his form of nonviolence satyagraha, a truth force, a love force, that you would hold so firmly to truth that you would refuse to do wrong to those around you. So Dr. King connected Gandhi's words with the words of Jesus, and it made it for a powerful, powerful weapon in the struggle for freedom. King wrote these words Uh, During the Montgomery bus boycott, he said, the nonviolent resistor not only refuses to shoot his opponent, but he also refuses to hate him. There was a deep constraining love. And this is what Peter is saying here. He's not condoning slavery. He's not holding up the system, but he's actually confronting the system by showcasing what it really is like. So that when you suffer, When you suffer and you exhibit this nonviolence, you actually bring about the biblical principles and values and showcase them before the culture and society that you're a part of. When you see injustice and your response is peace, you show the wrong being done. Jesus referenced these words, but they're also found in Proverbs 25. It says, if your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. When you treat your enemies with love, when you show up with a force of love that's stronger than any evil, stronger than any violence, stronger than any attack, that love 
is compelling. That love is stronger than any hate. It's a boundaried, respectful response to injustice. So Dr. King acted biblically and counterculturally. He called for acts of civil disobedience and sought to establish biblical values in society because he held up the value that all were created equal in the sight of God. And he did so without violence. That is how love wins over evil and darkness and suffering and violence. How do we do this? What is our motivation? How is it that we are able to do this? Verse 16 calls us back to this reality that we live as free people, constrained by love, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. I love how he's doing this. He's saying your respect, your love goes to all people. And the way that you show up in love is so impressive and so compelling because you know whose you are. You're God's. So no one can touch that. When you know you're under the favor of God, when you're focusing on the favor of God in your life, it allows you to stand in such a way that you would not be able to. You know that you are God's children. Verse 21 to 25 showcase Christ and his example because ultimately our motivation and our foundation for love, the reason we are constrained by love, is because of a love that didn't let us go. A love, the love of Jesus that we follow after. Jesus who suffered. Because remember, the context of Jesus' suffering was a great controversy where there were accusations against God. There were accusations that said that God was not who God says he is. And so when Jesus said, no, the suffering stops with me, he revealed by his willingness to take on the suffering, he revealed what evil and darkness and suffering really is like. And so Jesus took this on so that we could be free. Remember, this was really not easy for Peter himself to get. The dude writing a letter struggled with this himself. The first time Jesus spoke of the cross, Peter said, never, Lord. And Jesus used harsh words to rebuke him. But Peter got it. And Jesus taught him that his suffering was the way to his freedom. That the love of God exhibited in Jesus Christ is what opens up the way for us to be constrained by love in this very same way. There's this overcomer in our church that I want you to hear from. Ian Oyama went through a challenging time and an experience that I want you to hear how God gave him strength in the midst of his suffering. Words could not express what I was feeling. And I got very emotional and I didn't want my parents to see. So I went to the garage, a quiet place, and I cried. An experience that has solidified my faith extremely this past year was during the pandemic. All students were at home doing their studies and their homework and everything um, online, on computers, on devices. And our teachers started to know that students could cheat on their quizzes or tests because there's like this plagiarism checker. So one day I was doing a quiz for my English teacher and he, he was very disappointed in all the class because although we got really good grades, 
you could tell that our answers were a little bit off from other sources, websites. My teacher thought I like cheated on the test. So all of our grades went to an F, an F. I didn't want to upset my parents because over time I've been an A student all my life and to get an F was very bad. I was shocked. So I went to my phone and I texted my teacher. I was like, wait, how do I have this? I texted him. I didn't cheat and that he could go through my notebook because we could use our notebooks during the quiz. He said that he was gonna check my notebook to see if I was telling the truth. I prayed, I prayed constantly. I, I prayed so much that I would sometimes fall asleep praying. My teacher still gave me an F and it dropped my grade and I was shocked. I prayed a lot during that week, extremely to God. I was praying to him to change my teacher's mind about my grade and I didn't know what to do. Just pray and pray. I couldn't sleep sometimes because of that grade. Whenever I looked at my parents, I knew that I had an F. I didn't tell them that I had an F because there might be a chance for me to change my grade. Well, on that week, all the semester grades were due, so I prayed a lot. That day, I really couldn't sleep. I kept checking my phone, and I checked on the school's website. My grade was still an F. And then a notification pops up, and it was the most surprising thing that I thought was impossible. My teacher changed my grade to an A. And I felt so relieved. Instead of having a failed, an F, I had an A. And that was so good. Like, words could not express what I was feeling. And I got very emotional and I didn't want my parents to see because then again, I didn't tell them that I got an F at that time. So I went to the garage, a quiet place, and I cried. I, I thank God so much in that one space. It changed my life and my faith in God. It strengthened my faith and it showed that God, He does miracles, big miracles, and also He can do small miracles, like change a grade. And I'm very thankful for that. I am Ianoyama, and this is my story. I love that Ian was willing to share his story, and it is when something is unjust, it can eat at us, and yet he turned to God in the unjust situation that God was able to increase his faith through. We live in this way because we follow the example of Christ, who loved so deeply and loved us so much that he set us free to love as he did to be constrained by this love of God that changes the world around us.